Chapter One of The Lonely Lady of Grosvenor Square. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Lonely Lady of Grosvenor Square by Mrs. Henry de la Pasteur. Chapter One The Lonely Lady. It's delightful to breathe the air breathed by people in Grosvenor Square. Popular Song December in London, 1902 Fog had prevailed throughout the early part of the day. Now it had lifted, but a dismal rain was falling upon the coal-black stems of the lilac, the sooty branches of the plain, and the palings which divided them from the muddy pavement and muddier street. A benevolent, bearded policeman, secure in Mackintosh cape, paced slowly and solidly past the windows of 99 Grosvenor Square. Within, a lonely lady sat at luncheon. The table was spread with massive Georgian silver and crown derby china. Forced lilies of the valley, red roses prematurely called into being, and clinging garlands of smilax, curling in and out of the dessert dishes, added poetry to the prose of wealth's display. The servants were not permitted to wait at luncheon. The lonely lady left the brown chops to simmer over a plated furnace on the sideboard, and only looked at the glazed tongue and frilled ham reposing on beds of glittering aspic jelly. This was not because she lacked appetite, but because she was afraid to broach them, she helped herself timidly to boiled sole and mashed potato. She ate a little maraschino jelly in a furtive and guilty manner, and ended her meal by taking a peach and some crumbs of a fine old Stilton cheese, in the wrong order. She drank first water, stealthily and as though she were doing something wrong, and then, with frightened gulps of triumph, a small glass of light tawny port. When she rose from the table, she rang the bell so gently that the responding tinkle must have been very thin and uncertain, and she walked across the big, solemn dining-room, over the parquet floor of the square hall, past the porter's empty chair, and into the morning-room. Here she sat down, alone as usual. The room was decorated in strict accord with modern taste and convention. The ceiling was heavily encrusted with white ornament, like unto a wedding cake. Panels of green brocade bore old gilt candelabra on the walls. The narrow Adams mantel-shelf held Louis Say's candlesticks, a Dresden clock, and Sèvres vases, beneath the life-size Romney portrait, which occupied the space usually assigned to a mirror. The fender rose in wild ornament of mimic flames made in solid gilt metal around the white tiled fireplace. The moss green carpet bore heavy impress of a suite of Louis Say's furniture, gilt and brocaded. Hothouse palms, rose wreathed hangings, and the curved legs of enamelled tables lent graceful lines to pleasant spaces. Silver vases bore fragrant burdens of curled chrysanthemums golden and bronze. A malachite pillar supported a tree fern. 
and masses of azalea, pearl-petalled and scarlet-stained, bloomed in unnatural profusion in a shady corner, so quickly drooping, so easily renewed, because the owner of the house in Grosvenor Square was very rich and had a great love for flowers. The lonely lady had nothing to do with the decoration of the room and flowers which disdained times and seasons and bloomed for gold alone, bewildered as much as they pleased her. She sat on the sofa and looked at them, rose and walked to the window, and looked at the rain and the promenading policeman, returned to the sofa and looked at the little empty idle hands in her lap. She would gladly have taken down one of the volumes, bound in Morocco and bright with gold tooling, from the shelves behind the glass doors of the Chippendale bookcases, which lurked in the alcoves on either side of the fireplace. But, alas, she had tried the doors and found them securely locked. Upon the low occasional table by the side of the rose-wreathed couch lay a copy of the Book of Beauty, published in the early forties. It opened of itself at a steel engraving of the portrait of Miss Marnie of Orsett, and represented a young lady seated upon a balcony beside a marble pillar playing the harp. Miss Marnie wore a flowing muslin gown looped with roses. Ringlets depended on either side of a handsome face, archly smiling over a bare shoulder. Her gloves, lace handkerchief and a stiff little bouquet were carefully disposed in the foreground. The lonely lady had looked at the picture many times already and read the verses facing it which began, Fair girl, and hast thou left the festive scene? to warble as a nightingale without the noble halls of thine ancestral home where thou art queen of frolic, dance and rout. But she read them again with a momentary renewal of interest before she put the book back in its accustomed place. The crackling of the fire within the room and the distant clip-clop and jingle of hansoms outside broke the silence. There was straw laid down in the street beneath the windows because the owner of the house was ill. The lonely lady looked up at the Romney portrait and sighed childishly. I wish you could speak to me. Her name was Jeanne-Marie Charlotte de Courset, but the gilt plate on the frame of the Romney portrait bore the name of her English great-grandfather. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Marnie, R.E., of Orsett Hall, near Bath, born 1771, died 1851. The portrait must have been painted when Harry Marnie was about 20 years old. He wore a grey powdered wig ending in a pigtail, a red coat with black velvet reveres and gold epaulets, a waistcoat and knee breeches of white satin and a snowy neckcloth. The scene represented a battlefield and the young face, oval and delicate as a woman's, stood boldly out against a background of lowering clouds and grey smoke. Straight black brows met above dark blue eyes and an aquiline nose. A firmly closed mouth with slightly upturned corners gave a stern, almost satirical expression to the proud, handsome face. "'It's no use looking so brave and so scornful,' said John. You know you were never in a battle in all your long life. 
Then she relented and apologised. But I dare say you would have been if you could, for you are very like Louis. So like that it almost makes me cry to look at you, great-grandpapa Harry. I suppose promotion was very quick in your time for gentlemen of fortune. Or perhaps the inscription was put a long time after the picture was painted. Surely you could not have been a colonel at that age. Must ask Aunt Caroline. The only surviving daughter of Colonel Harry lay upstairs on her sickbed. She was now eighty years old, as the original of the portrait had been when death had summoned him from the hunting field to take his place in the family vault. Jeanne had been nearly three weeks in the house of her great-aunt, but it seemed to her almost as though as many years must have elapsed since she had left the farm on the borders of Wales, where she and her twin brother Louis had been brought up. She was used to loneliness. Coed Ithel lay among the mountains, more than two miles from the nearest village, and the roads were bad and distances great for travellers to town and market. The homestead belonged to her bachelor uncle, a hard-working farmer who was generally out of doors and who mostly fell asleep if forced from any cause to remain within, so that his niece could scarcely look to him for companionship, even if he had been as congenial to her as he was kind. She had not seen her brother Louis, who was now in South Africa, since he had left home to join his regiment in India nearly five years ago. Thus she had grown accustomed to a certain solitude, but the loneliness of the hillside is not the loneliness of a large house in the midst of a crowd of strangers. A restless impatience of the conditions which surrounded her began to pervade her empty days and her wakeful nights. She was five and twenty years old, but in consequence of her forlornness and the roundness of her little face, she looked much younger. Her sojourn in town had not yet succeeded in dimming the beautiful red bloom which the air of her native mountains had lent her complexion. The clear blue whites of her soft brown eyes, fringed with long black lashes, betrayed the perfect healthfulness of their owner. Dimples lurked on the round chin and in the round young cheeks, but there was no smile to bring them forth from their hiding places. The corners of the pretty mouth drooped and expressed as much sadness as such a childish face could hold. Jeanne had seen her aunt but once during the last three weeks. Upon the day of her arrival, she had been sent for to Miss Marnie's own apartment, to which that lady had been confined by illness for some time past, although she had not then yet taken to her bed. Her first view of Miss Caroline presented to her a tall and dignified figure, erect in an elbow chair, and clad in a flowing gown of grey satin, with flounces of Honiton lace, upon which couch of luxury her favourite dog, a little Yorkshire terrier, was very calmly reposing. A lace cap with pale pink velvet bows crowned Miss Caroline's white hair, parted above black brows which met across a hawk nose and blue eyes still piercing, still blackly fringed. Jeanne had trembled not a little before this stately apparition, and her obvious alarm and admiration had impressed her grand-aunt favourably. But of the interview she had but a vague recollection, 
for between terror and fatigue she could scarce bring herself to answer the few formal questions put to her concerning her journey. Miss Marney would hardly have permitted an earthquake, far less the arrival of a humble stranger niece, to derange one of the established customs of her regular existence. It was the hour for double dummy, and Jeanne was therefore requested to establish herself in an armchair in the background, and given a prolonged opportunity for recovering her composure during her aunt's nightly recreation of card-playing. As the clock struck nine, Mrs. Pike, the housekeeper, entered, dressed in black brochet, which was curiously patterned with violet flowers in accordance with an ancient fashion. Also, she wore a black lace cap upon her head and a long gold watch-chain about her neck. The maid, Dunham, had already set forth the cart-table, and Mrs. Pike, pausing in the doorway to make a curtsy, glided decorously into her place and gathered the cards into slightly palsied hands, veiled by black mittens. Pike had entered her ninetieth year, but it had not yet occurred to her that she was too old to fulfil her duties. She was a strangely silent person, and her length of service did not inspire her to abate one iota of her perpetual awestruck deference to her employer, though nothing could have exceeded Miss Marnie's graciousness to her oldest dependent. The rubber had been played in silence, Jeanne scarcely daring to breathe. She noted with wonder and delight the magnificence of her grand-aunt's appearance and the stateliness of her bearing. She had indeed never seen anyone like her. Every time Miss Marnie tossed her head, and this was a favourite gesture, oft repeated, Jeanne thrilled responsively. She practised the movement afterwards before her looking-glass in private, and was disgusted at her own inability to produce double chins in rapid succession. The scene interested her deeply. The card table, lighted with green shaded candles, struck her with pleasant dismay. Her nonconformist uncle at Coed Ithel called cards the devil's books, and she had never seen this class of literature before. She felt almost as guilty as though she were being called upon to assist at a witch's orgy, instead of an old lady's innocent rubber, as she watched the housekeeper's shriveled black figure and dim spectacled eyes peering at the cards held in her mittened hands. She observed with interest the small sour smile on Mrs. Pike's sunken mouth when her mistress condescended to put an ace on her king, and heard her faint clack of apology when she secured the odd trick for herself. Jeanne wondered why both the old servants affected Violet as their only decoration, and came to the conclusion that it must be because they thought it the most respectful colour for servants to wear, next to unrelieved black. Dunham, another silent witness of the game, had been interested only in the flush on Miss Marnie's face, and the stertorous difficult breathing which was painfully audible in the heavily curtained double-windowed room. The rubber was cut short by some astounding coups and a timely revoke on the part of Mrs. Pike, in deference to private signals from Dunham, who was seated a little behind her mistress. When it was over, another time-honoured ceremony was gone through, 
a glass of Madeira was poured out very solemnly and presented to the aged housekeeper, as a recompense and refreshment after her labours. Pike received this mark of favour with perennial surprise and gratitude, venturing to express a humble wish for Miss Marnie's good health before she swallowed the wine, and making a second curtsy before she retired finally from the apartment. Jeanne, too, had been dismissed, but with a gracious smile, an intimation that she should in future address her relative as Aunt Caroline, rather than as Aunt Marnie, and a promise that an early interview should be accorded in the morning. During the night, however, a great bustle and commotion arose in the old house, of which little Jeanne, sleeping soundly after her journey, and forgotten by the terrified domestics, knew nothing. She learnt next day that her grand-aunt was very ill, and that she had had some kind of a stroke or seizure. Dunham was reticent concerning details, but she explained that Jeanne must not go to Miss Marnie's room unless she was sent for, and Jeanne, unaccustomed to independent action of any kind, for she had always been subject to authority, had acquiesced as a matter of course. During the weeks that followed, she had moped, unquiet, alone and disconsolate, poring over the newspapers for hours, rather in hopes of finding her brother's name in the South African intelligence than because she was particularly interested in the general news of the day, afraid of venturing forth alone into the unfamiliar streets, choked by the fog, depressed by the weather, and hourly expectant of the summons to her aunt's bedside. The long afternoon wore away, and at half-past four the tea was brought in by Hewitt the butler and William the Irish footman. William was still a footman, though forty summers had passed lightly over his carroty head and freckled face. For his twinkling eyes, snub nose, and wide smiling mouth belied all his efforts to emulate the serious dignity of his superior, and debarred him for ever from rising to the first rank in his profession. A little animation came into the lonely lady's woebegone face when the servants withdrew, leaving her respectfully alone to enjoy her meal. She enjoyed it less because she was hungry than because eating and drinking gave her something to do. To farm-bred Jeanne, the tea, however dainty, appeared but the contemptible shadow of her favourite repast, though, since she had taken next to no exercise for some days past, and had lunched but two hours earlier, a less healthy appetite would scarcely have needed it at all. She handled the heavy Georgian urn nervously, made the tea, and poured it into a shallow cup of eggshell china. She spurned the London cream, delicately flavoured with boracic acid, and haughtily left one of the four minute wafers which did duty for bread and butter on its snowy folded napkin, lest Hewitt and William should be led to suppose her accustomed to more solid fare. It was a greater effort of self-denial to spare the third sponge-cake. Miss Marnie's still-room maid made excellent sponge-cakes, though they were shaped and sized rather to suit dolls than human beings with a taste for sweet things. Spin it out as she would, the meal was over in the space of a quarter of an hour, and when the door opened presently, John thought the servants had come to clear away the tea-things. She did not turn her head from the window, still blurred with rain, to which she had returned, but stood there, 
looking out dismally at the rows of twinkling lights in perspective, reflected in the wet mud of the street, until they were lost in grey mist and smoke. The sound of a throat cleared, respectfully but unmistakably in readiness for speaking, made her start, and she beheld her aunt's maid standing at her elbow. The old-fashioned waiting woman, who was scarce ten years younger than her mistress, and had tended Miss Marnie faithfully for upwards of half a century, addressed Jeanne kindly but stiffly, and somewhat as though she were speaking to a very little child. "'Your auntie is asking for you, Missy. "'For me, at last. "'Will she really see me again? "'I will come at once,' said Jeanne, very joyfully. "'The ennui vanished, and the dimples appeared. "'Then she must be better. "'Is she better, Mrs. Dunham, do you think?' "'Dunham shook her head. "'Down her wrinkled face stole the slow tears of age, "'falling unheeded, one after another.' "'onto her black silk bodice and violet silk apron. "'A certain independence of character, "'joined to great industry and a respectful manner, "'had recommended Dunham to her mistress "'from their earliest acquaintance. "'They quarrelled just sufficiently often, "'and Dunham was just sufficiently outspoken "'to enliven their daily intercourse. "'But the maid was tactful as well as frank "'and knew exactly how far she might go.' Now that her lady lay dying, Dunham felt very desolate. Her interests outside the little world of Miss Marnie's household had lessened with the passing of years almost a vanishing point. The thought of change chilled and saddened her. She would have been shocked indeed had any one accused her of wishing to die before her time, but yet, had she been given any choice in the matter by Providence, it is probable that she would have chosen to accompany Miss Marnie on the journey which lay before her now, as she had accompanied her on shorter journeys during the past fifty years of her existence. Jeanne's pretty face reflected the maid's sadness. Her heart was tender, and her impulses were quick and warm, though perhaps not always as wise as they were kind. She would have embraced and consoled the old woman had she dared, but the distance between them seemed too awful to be thus bridged over by an impulse, and Dunham looked too inscrutably respectful and dignified to be embraced by any one, far less by so young and insignificant a stranger as Jan felt herself to be. Wherefore she followed her guide meekly and silently up the winding stone staircase of the old house to the second floor. She felt both frightened and pitiful, for Dunham's expression betrayed that she believed her mistress to be on the point of death. End of chapter 1